Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Marlon B. Ross about Sissy Insurgencies, a Racial Anatomy of Unfit Manliness, published by Duke University Press in 2022. Sissy Insurgencies focuses on the figure of the sissy in order to rethink how Americans have imagined, articulated, and negotiated manhood and boyhood from the 1880s to the present. Rather than collapsing sissiness into homosexuality, Ross shows how it constitutes a historically fluid range of gender practices that are expressed as a physical manifestation, discursive epithet, social identity, and political phenomenon. He reconsiders several Black leaders, intellectuals, musicians, and athletes within the context of sissiness, from Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, and James Baldwin, to Little Richard, Amiri Baraka, and Wilt Chamberlain, demonstrating that sissiness can be embraced and exploited to conform to American gender norms or disrupt racialized patriarchy He also shows how it constitutes a central element in modern understandings of race and gender. Dr. Marlon B. Ross is professor of English at the University of Virginia, where he has taught since 2001. Before that, he was professor of English and African-American and African studies at the University of Michigan. His interests include a variety of fields related to race, gender, sexuality, and culture, And he's also the author of Manning the Race, Reforming Black Men in the Jim Crow Era, and The Contours of Masculine Desire, Romanticism and the Rise of Women's Poetry. Marlon, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So I like to start each episode by asking the authors to share with us their book's origin stories. So uh, can you tell us how did your book come about? Uh, It was not something I had deliberately intended to write. Um, It 
started many years ago when um, I added to my portfolio African-American studies. I was trained in graduate school as a, a British Romanticism scholar, but I got a request to write an essay on Black masculinity many, many years ago. And in response to that request, I just got obsessed with this question and I started a two-volume project, the first volume of which was Manning the Race. Uh, and as I was writing Manning the Race, I kept noting in my own thinking this question of of uh, the sissy, this question of the queer uh, Black uh, male, especially in relationship to leadership. Uh, so I decided um, to turn my attention more directly to that, which led to this book, Sissy Insurgencies, before I turned my attention to the second volume uh, of Manning the Race. So I that was that's a part of the origin story. The other part, of course, begins with my own origin as a sissy boy in South Texas um, under the regime of Jim Crow. And as I started thinking about sissiness and its relationship to race and to nationality, I began to understand um, some of the complications of this phenomenon in relation to myself. And as a result, I did some uh, some uh, ane- autobiographical anecdotes in the original book, and most of that is gone now, <laughs> uh, but uh, it did, did shape my approach and thinking about my own relationship to this topic. Yes, I really enjoyed uh, that there's an anecdote in the beginning of the book. I'm not going to give it away. Folks can read about it, but uh, I love those uh, moments where you talked about yourself as well. So I really love how you opened the book. The first sentence here is, once we begin to look at them, we see sissies everywhere. And this might sound like a straightforward question, but after reading your book, we understand how how it's not. Could you sort of try to define the sissy for us, sort of to get us into the story? What or who is a sissy? And how is this different from other terms used to refer to men who somehow fail to conform with gender norms and expectations? And throughout the book, you bring different terminology, you talk about language in in very useful and interesting ways. Yes, uh, thank you. um, I would start by saying one of the reasons I was interested in using the sissy as a theoretical vehicle is because sissiness is at once a highly fixed and stigmatized object and at the same time it is uh, highly um, uh, fungible that it it's hard to put your finger on it even as people think that they can spot a sissy <laughs> uh, very easily. Um, I would define the sissy as a non-conforming, a gender non-conforming male or boy whose gender comportment, and this this relates to both the physical or material presentation of the self and also the psychological, emotional, internal, less uh, decipherable aspects of what it means to conform to conventional uh, masculine, um, uh, to conventional masculinity. Uh, so the sissy, whether boy or man, is non-conforming, and immediately 
this tends to uh, jettison us into the notion of the homosexual or the same gender loving male. Uh, but I, I, I want, I wanted to theorize this distinction for a variety of reasons. One being that one can be gender non-conforming and not be same gender loving. And so I wanted to look at why that confusion or conflation of the homosexual in the sissy, how it's operating culturally, socially, politically, and ideologically, and what we could learn from separating the two and helping us to understand why the sissy is so stigmatized, even if the sissy is not a homosexual, is not um, necessarily a homosexual. And that I thought that brought into clearer focus uh, how gender nonconformity itself is seen as a danger to a larger society, even when it is not immediately attached to homosexuality. So the book is divided into six chapters. Each one examines a different historical period. And as, as you put it, uh, also a different aspect of the feud between sissiness and masculinity as a racialized dynamic. And this is an important point to make because throughout the book, you have this premise here that, and I'm quoting you, gender conformity is necessarily expressed through racial identification. So could you talk a, a little bit about this? Yes, uh, I wanted to explore how um, if we think of gender and race as being interdependent, interlocking um, phenomena, then we have to say that a sissy configuration or a sissy conduct is always um, also a part of this interlocking uh, dynamic. Uh, and as I looked at particular figures and particular events across American history and across African-American history, this was repeatedly confirmed for me that um, in um, the stigmatizing and the policing, the surveillance of uh, a sig- of sissy conduct, uh, it's not necessarily the case that black boys and white boys experience exactly the same kind of surveillance and stigmatization, though obviously there is a great commonality. So I wanted to think about the distinction that occurs or the difference that occurs when we include the important factor of race. And along with race uh, come a, n- a number of other uh, important attributes like religion, like class, like um, a p- political orientation, and, and, and not to mention that um, as boys, different racial groups are tutored, are taught to interact with the world in different ways based not only on their gender, but also their racial assignation. So a black boy is being tutored to interact with the world, to be in the world, to walk within the world, to express himself within the world in a particular way that is supposed to alert people to his uh, gender conformity. Uh, But race, uh, I would say, gets in the way, if you will, of a kind of straightforward presentation because black boys are perceived in the public and then are taught to perceive themselves slightly differently so that... um, a black sissy is not exactly the same um, conduct or perception as a white sissy boy. Yes. 
I'm glad you brought that word up because I wanted you to talk about it's it's an important concept here um, that I wanted you to discuss as a means to continue introducing the book to our listeners, and that is conduct. You write here that, and I I found that very useful, uh, very interesting as well. You write that somewhere between identity and performance, performativity lies a much less analyzed arena that I label or you label conduct. What do you mean by conduct and how does that inform the analysis here? Conduct for me was absolutely essential once I began. If I start the book by saying, once you begin to look for them, sissies are everywhere. So my next question was, well, how do I know they're everywhere? How do I know there are, what, what, is a, what is a sissy? And I began to realize that um, the surveillance of the sissy is, is usually done through uh, spotting particular physical manifestations uh, and I will give an example to make it more concrete. Uh, you know, the properly gendered male body is supposed to uh, present itself in particular ways, or at least that's the assumption. Uh, and I, I was thinking of how this expresses itself in a variety of ways. The upper body, or what I call gesture, the lower body, or what I call gait, and the voice are three of them. How the register of the voice as as well as the dynamics of the voice. So I'll just give voices a, a brief example. There's there is this idea that when a boy turns into a man, his voice must change as proof of that. And you know, we, we see this everywhere. It's a very familiar idea that a that that the high voice of the boy becomes deepened and gruffer. But Along with that are ideas about the way men are supposed to speak. For instance, men are not supposed to elocute too precisely. If a, if a, a, a boy or a, a pubescent boy is too precise in his elocution, that's enough of a signal for people to say, oh, he's a sissy. Um, it, it, I think the assumption is that his voice is not maturing into manhood the way it's supposed to be. And along with that, it's an assumption that men are not too precious when it comes to articulating their words. <laughs> um, that's the preserve that is usually usually for for women because it's connected to emotionality, you know, all of these gender assumptions that are at work. And I'll give you a brief example from upper gesture, especially um, there's this notion of the limp wrist, which I th- many, many people are familiar with, that the simple gesture of a, of a male's limp wrist could immediately result in some sort of policing and sometimes actually in physical violence because the limp wrist is immediately taken as a sign um, of, of a boy or a man whose posture is not erect enough, who, whose posture is too soft. And we have, you know, we have many occasions of, of uh, b- b- boys being ridiculed, being mocked uh, if they have a so-called limp wrist. Those are just a couple of examples of the sort of physical manifest uh, uh, signals that are taken to identify a sissy through conduct. Uh, and that's sort of where it begins. And of course, it, it deepens into those emotional and the psychological, uh, the introspective as 
the way we're perceived in the world affects the way we perceive ourselves. And so people who are labeled from an early age, boys who are labeled sissy from an early age, begin to doubt or question their relationship to the conventional, conventionally masculine. And it's that self-doubt, I think, itself that begins to display itself in subtle ways for boys who are not quite sure that they fit or who are being told repeatedly that they don't fit. That can affect the conduct. It can affect a behavior. It can affect the way a boy talks with more hesitation uh, than what a, a, a boy or a man is supposed to exhibit. In, for instance, a situation of rivalry or danger or of, uh, of uh, someone who is uh, challenging him. Yes, I'd like to thank you because I am working on an oral history project with drag performers. So I talk oh, a I... lot to um, feminine men. And this, uh-huh. this notion of conduct helped me understand a lot of the stories that they were telling uh, of their childhood and also that was very interesting (laughs) great great but you explain here right that sissiness is not necessarily a physical attribute and that you showed up very well in your discussion of booker t washington i'd like you to talk a bit about this distinction you make between sissy social practice and sissy physical embodiment and, and throughout the book, you have protagonists in the chapters, but you also bring other historical characters to discuss them. So I wanted you to talk also, how does George Washington Carver feature in this uh, chapter? But before you answer, I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that beautiful photograph of Carver in drag that you have in the book. <laughs> that is just beautiful. Yeah, I... I... I searched, it was hard under COVID because I couldn't get to the archives, but I was trying desperately to find out the original source for that photograph and I was not able to find it. I'm going to continue the search, uh, but I found the photograph in, a, in, in one of the biographies of, of Carver. And it's one of the things that shocked me and made me realize that I had to talk about Carver if I were to talk about Booker T. Washington and Tuskegee. So I do distinguish for purposes of discussion the what I call the physiological sissy, the sissy who displays those attributes, uh, those physical attributes of a gait or, or gesture or voice that I was talking about earlier. And by the way, Carver had all of those, but we might, I might come back to that, had all of those attributes. Um, I distinguish the physiological sissy from, yes, a sissy of social, social practice. And what I mean by that, I think it's best explained through the example of Booker T. Washington. Um, I would start by saying that as far as we know from all of the historical record, Booker T. Washington was uh, very much heterosexual and was conventionally masculine in terms of his comportment, right? In terms of, and I can't, I, we, we can't know this absolutely, but we think we can know it because if he was not, it would have been commented on profusely. <laughs> people would have brought attention to it because people bring attention when a male does not conform. But the way that he does not conform is in the narrative he provides of himself and the way in which his leadership is uh, promoted and adjudicated 
in relation to the politics of the time. Uh, and I, the best thing I can do is to give a couple of examples. In his uh, Up From Slavery, his 1901 autobiography, he repeatedly uh, represents himself in situations that are not supposed to be the case for a boy or a man. And he, uh, he represents himself, for instance, his entry to uh, Hampton Institute. Um, he represents himself as getting into Hampton by demonstrating his good housekeeping by perfectly dusting and sweeping a room for the schoolmistress who was the person in authority uh, to decide whether he could be admitted into the institution or not. Uh, And he goes on and on for pages about this pivotal moment of his sweeping uh, for this northern uh, Yankee schoolmistress and how close he became to her and how, because he could not afford to matriculate, she gave him a janitorial position where he would be responsible for the sweeping and the dusting. This puts him in the odd position of celebrating his, um, let's say, his identity within the institution in a role that was usually preserved for women. Uh, and this is, this is highlighted as well by the fact that the authority over him is a white, is a white woman. Uh, and this idea continues to the, to the point that I, I say that there's a way in which in his relation to the larger white world under advancing Jim Crow, in order to make his leadership possible and plausible to the ruling white men, he constantly um, makes himself less intimidating to them by registering his acceptance of this role, this sort of sissy uh, political position of not trying to occupy the place of a ruling white man or a man who can rule over women, while at the same time, as head of his own institution, Tuskegee, he represents himself as a proper patriarch. So what we have is a dual audience. We have the Black audience, the students and faculty at Tuskegee, as well as the larger the, the larger purview of the people who were dependent upon Tuskegee uh, because it became a major place for people to advance under Jim Crow to the extent that they could do so. Uh, he has that audience in which he comports himself as a proper patriarch. But for the larger world, he represents himself and he behaves. He behaves as a very um, humble doesn't get at it as a man who is naturally sissified, is a man who will not make a claim to emancipation, where emancipation is a right to vote, is a right to a whole public office, is a right to be the head of a corporation, is the, is the right to um, determine the final answer in governance, but instead to always be dependent on more powerful white men to do so. Uh, to approve of what he's doing. This is also amplified, or or let me put it this way, the way I came to think about the way he was perceived as a a sissy of social practice is the way his critics respond, his Black critics responded to him. And I will just give one example. Uh, W.B. Du Bois attacks 
Washington, his political program and his edu- educational program, by saying that Washington saps the manhood of the race. And I say in contemporary uh, terms, we would say that Du Bois is punking Du Bois. He's saying he's not enough of a man. He's not saying that this is the case in terms of his sexuality or in terms of the way his body presents itself to the world. He's saying it in terms of the way his politics represents the race and the way his political agenda represents Washington himself as not man enough. The other word that Du Bois uses instead of sissy is sycophant. And so I do an etymology and I talk about how sycophant, calling a man a sycophant in the the political parlance of the time was tantamount to calling him a sissy, or another word they use is a, a Miss Nancy, uh, a man who is not not equipped to deal with the hard knuckle real politics of the time, but instead it depends on another man parasitically to do that work for him. That that is a a fascinating chapter. But could you talk now about the conduct that you label here, gentle manliness, and the pause was intentional because these are two separate words. And how do you see it applied to James Weldon Johnson? Could I just say a brief word about Booker T. Washington before I move on? Yes, of course. I'm sorry, about Carver. In contrast with Washington, uh, George Washington Carver uh, is a physiological sissy. And I just want to point out that not only did he cross-dress more than once, he also uh, pursued very uh, feminine-identified vocations like like uh, crocheting and knitting and water sketching, etc. And that he chose to live in the women's dorm, or they put him in the women's dorm as opposed to the men's residence hall. Uh, and all of that was very curious to me. And then I saw places where his, he was being attacked in a similar way by one of his male colleagues at Tuskegee, that Washington was being attacked by Du Bois, but in a way that alerts us to his gender non-conforming physicality. Um, And so I just use that as a contrast to think about the two different ways in which during this period of the early 1900s, uh, sissification could work. Uh, The last thing I would say here about Carver is that there's not a lot of attention to Carver's uh, sissiness during, if we look at newspaper reports, et cetera, during the time. Uh, because it was largely protected by the Jim Crow institution in which he worked for all of his adult life by Tuskegee. So there's a way in which Washington's Tuskegee, this Jim Crow institution, protected George Washington Carver from the larger public and allowed him to to, um, conduct himself really as a sissy within those enclosed environments of the Jim Crow institution. This is absolutely not the case for James Weldon Johnson because he was very much a man of the world, very much a cosmopolitan. Uh, He's the first African-American head of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. He was uh, very early on uh, a a diplomat in Central America. Uh, He represented the United States in, in Japan at an important conference. So he's very much interacting with the world on the world stage. And he does so 
uh, like Booker T. Washington, as um, physically as a gender conforming man, he does so also in terms of his sexuality, which which we think we're pretty sure is heterosexual. Um, but I would say he adapts uh, his gender in order to to deal with um, the threats that he had to confront as uh, the leader of the race during this high period of Jim Crow, where lynching and racial uh, racial mobs were were very much a part of the the culture of the time. So my my argument is that when you read his autobiography and his most famous novel, uh, the the Ex Colored Man, when you read these two texts together, you realize that jo- James Walton Johnson is very is highly self conscious about being a gentle man, a man, a, a, a man who defies the characterization of the race, of men of the race as either brutes or Uncle Toms. Instead, he, he forges this uh, representation of himself that is very much um, restrained in a way that diplomats must be restrained. But at the same time, he is a fighting man, but he says that he fights passively and that he bends like the willow, right, in circumstance. Um, and uh, we see many, many instances of this in, in his autobiography. And if should I just give one brief example or? Yes, please. He was almost lynched when he went to his hometown of, of, of Jacksonville, Florida, because he was in a park with a a woman who is very light in color. And there was some militia from deeper in the South who were there in town. And these militia, when they see him with this white appearing woman, they think it's a black man with a white woman and they begin to attack him. Uh, And he records in meticulous detail how he responded to to this militia that is about to attack him. He responds with a, he does not respond with a masculine aggressive attack. He responds passively by uh, allowing the mob to come up to him. And his main concern was for the woman who is with him. And he takes her parasol (laughs) and he allows her to step through this fence. And he, he behaves like a gentleman, even though he's very likely about to be lynched. In that moment, he is saved by a military officer who recognized, because he was a famous man by this point, a military officer who recognizes who he is and who comes to his rescue and deters the mob and says, I will take him under under my authority. So they, the mob assumes, the militia assumes that he's being arrested when actually he's being rescued. So I point out that he allows himself to be rescued like a damsel in distress, and he makes no bones about this because it's the way he survives this incident. But he still survives, if you will, with his manliness intact to the extent that he represents himself as in a way superior to that mob. He responds like a man with coolness, with calm, with restraint, a gentleman and a gentle man in the midst of a lynching mob.
I, I really appreciate how you place these authors and the, their works in historical context. It becomes very vivid. You understand their expressions of masculinity and or sissiness in these concepts. So that brings us to chapter four that's entitled Baldwin's Sissy Heroics. And I think until now we had not seen anyone who was quite as openly uh, gay mm -hmm. in, the, in the book. So I'd like you to tell us what you mean when you talk about Baldwin's sissy defiance or sissy heroics, but also uh, uh, because I'm interested in historical context, I wanted you to talk about the role of mass media of the period, which you bring, you bring in here so, so uh, brilliantly in how Baldwin was perceived and presented himself. Yes, um... I had to talk about Baldwin, and I needed a, a ch chapter devoted to Baldwin and to the response to Baldwin's sissiness, uh, because I think it's a pivotal moment that is related to, uh, ma to mass media. If you think back for a moment to Carver, the only way that, Carver, that people could have seen Carver in any sort of um, popular or mass context would have been his uh, speaking to a large audience audience, obviously in person, right? Um, and so there's a limitation in that period. There's a certain limitation, or for him, an opportunity, because it means that uh, even if he would physically display sissiness, its translation into the mass um, is not quite as immediate as when we come to the period of, especially of television. Um, because Uh, for Baldwin in his period, he was one of the most televised persons in America. He was constantly on television, on panels, on talk shows, uh, in speeches. His, his body is everywhere and is being beamed into the living rooms of Americans of every ethnicity, of every social background. And so we have a, a pivotal moment in which a person's legible physical manifestation of sissiness can be read, um, can, can be spotted in this sort of visual medium. And the, the irony or the paradox is that I suggest Baldwin does not hide his sissiness. The, whatever physical manifestation he had in voice or in gesture or in gait, he allowed that to be. And he allowed that to be beamed to a broad public. I'm not sure if he could have behaved in a different way, but knowing Baldwin, I don't think he would have. I think my argument is that it is part of his insurgency. It is part of his defiance to not try to manage his body in such a way that it would not be read as a sissy. The other thing I would point out about, um, about Baldwin is that in his work, both his fiction And his essays, which frequently reference his autobiography, he constantly refers to himself both as a sissy and in other ways uh, identifying his gender nonconformity. He, he also, um, he, he never says, says, I am queer or I am homosexual in the way that uh, a lot of people wanted him to. And that is interesting in itself, the fact that he doesn't. But 
it is obvious he never he never denies or tries to hide his homosexuality. So this is a case where the sissy converges with the homosexual. And I will provide an example here. By 1963, Baldwin was at the height of his fame. He had published his novel, Another Country, in 1962, and homosexuality is all across that novel. (laughs) Uh, And so anyone who had any doubt, they would have just said, well, anyone who's writing this much about queerness, about male queerness, it must be gay. And of course, he had written... uh, other fiction before that also was about homosexuality. But this book was was the best-selling novel of the time. In 63, he writes The Fire Next Time, uh, which also was a, a best-selling essay. And so he's at the height of his fame. And he, uh, he appears on the cover of Time magazine. And I have an essay on this. Uh, I did not reprint the cover of Time magazine in the book, but I have an essay that does reprint it. And this, this, what's interesting about the cover is it's just a headshot of Baldwin. And I point out that it's hard to designate someone a sissy from a headshot. Uh, and it talks about him as the spokesman or the voice for the civil rights movement on the cover. Then when you turn inside the magazine, the article on Baldwin is all about his sissiness. It's all about the way he smokes a cigarette, the way he fretters with his hand, the way his hand, it's, it almost says a lip wrist, and, and the way he talks and the way his, his, he, um, he, he um, gestures, and he fidgets in his seat. It, it talks about him as little, as being too little. So it, all of these adjectives add up. And I've show many other instances of how people add up these kinds of adjectives in order to indicate a sissy sensorium. All of these things. So in other words, the author of that article is calling Baldwin out as a sissy and in an underhanded way is questioning, well, how did somebody like this become the a leading voice of this civil rights movement? And so and this is a moment, you know, in which Baldwin is beginning to be attacked by the rising black power movement, represented especially by Malcolm X uh, and later by the black nationalist like Amira Baraka. And they are also calling him out uh, in very, very vivid and nasty terms um, as gender nonconforming, as a you know the F word, as a faggot, and um, Baldwin responds to this. I argue by instead of you know denying, trying to deny, instead of simply you know saying you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, he responds by making a case in his presentation of his body and his voice and in his intellectual discourse, making a case for the role of a sissy on the front line of leadership. And, uh, you know, I, I, I try to make this case, especially through the text, No Name in the Street, uh, which he published in the early 70s, where he's very directly responding to the attacks on him uh, for not being uh, a proper man at the head of uh, a, a revolution. Uh, the last thing I will point out here is that 
at the same time that these young Turks, we might call them of the new black nationalist movement, many of them are attacking Baldwin, they are also attacking the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. People may remember that Malcolm X attacks his program by saying, in no war do you put men and children on the front line, which is another, which is a way of calling the Reverend King out and suggesting that he's not behaving like a proper male warrior at the head of a movement. And it's also a way of suggesting that it, the movement is not a revolution, but is something other and less than. So Baldwin's very aware of all of that. And so he calculates and he represents another way of thinking about the civil rights movement, another way of thinking about racial liberation that does not rely on these uh, hyper-masculine tropes of the warrior and of the, the fighting man and of, you know, and of, you know, of even the, 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 the man who uh, has to refuse to have any sort of contact with outside of the race. It, it is an, uh, an incredible chapter. It's so rich. There, there's this, uh, the Baldwin's role in the civil rights movement. We, we have, uh, as you mentioned, his, this relationship, complex relationship with the black nationalist movement. But you also, as you did in uh, the, the other chapters, you bring in other sort of characters to uh, contrast to Baldwin that I found really interesting I, I uh, really uh, was interested in your discussion, of, for instance, of Truman Capote and Andy Warhol to discuss the, the race here, but also when you bring in Little Richard and Sylvester, right? Uh, yeah. So, the, yeah, this is an amazing chapter. We could do a whole episode <laughs> on it uh, so folks can read all about it. Uh, but it, then the next chapter begins with the following question. How do you spot a sissy when he's a straight black man? So tell us a bit about the straight sissies you were discussing and when you talk about the black male intellectuals autobiographies of the 1990s. Um, Yeah, this is um, a a kind of elaboration of the second chapter uh, on on Booker T. Washington, um, which we could think of as a, as a straight sissy, right? As a heterosexual man who's gender nonconforming. So I wanted to think about how at the turn into the 20th century, we have this black male leader who presents himself in a non-gender conforming way in terms of his political program. And then at the end of the century, ironically, we have a group of a set of um Black male intellectuals uh, after the uh, fame of Baldwin contending with what it means to claim leadership of the race in a post-civil rights moment after the emergence of second wave feminism, after the emergence of the, the lesbian and gay rights movement, after the and in the midst of the um, desegregation of elite previously white universities. So in this period, I wanted to trace the straight sissy as a kind of influence from Baldwin that these black male intellectuals could not avoid. And that's why I pivot the chapter with Amira Baraka. And I point out that when you look at a 
Baraka's early work, before he became a Black nationalist, he represents himself in ways that are very close to Baldwin's uh, sissy pose, even though he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he does not identify himself as homosexual. And I wasn't re- really interested in whether he was straight or gay or not, uh, but I was interested in the fact that he talks about his very close uh, friendship and collaboration as a literary figure with white homosexuals. Uh, and by the time he becomes a black nationalist in the in the mid-1960s, he's very interested in purging, in purging, let's say, that sissy within, that intimacy with sissiness, whether it's the black sissy Baldwin or the white, the white sissies of the beat movement, like Allen Ginsberg, uh, whom he had this relationship with. And so um Baraka, as a Black nationalist, uh, begins to help to articulate this idea that for that a proper Black man in the post-civil rights moment uh, must be uh, a particular kind of warrior, even if he is really just a writer. (laughs) And so the equation between the pen and the weapon becomes one of his biggest metaphors as a way of as as distancing himself from him his earlier sissy persona so that by the time we get to the 1990s we're dealing with um, another kettle of fish so to speak the black public intellectuals of the 1990s are trying to situate themselves so that they are on the one hand uh, acceptable to um, second wave feminism, which is demanding a man, it's demanding a, mas- a masculinity that is, in today's term, we would say no longer toxic. And on the other hand, they are responding to the uh, Afrocentrist movement, which is uh, an um, descendant of Black nationalism. And the, atro- the Afrocentrists were demanding that Black male leadership return to a patriarchal role. They were attacking um, the progress of the gay rights movement and suggesting that this movement, that the the Black homosexual is a threat to the Black family. Uh, Because with any nationalism, one of the motives becomes procreation, to procreate and to lead and to head the race as a proper patriarch. Uh, So, you know, and there are many other forces at work, but those are two that I was looking at how they navigate this uh, by the, on the one hand, reasserting their straightness, right? Their hetero, uh, the heterosexuality, but on the other hand, pointing out that they understand this new era in which f- feminism and gay rights are important, and they become, let's say, allies, to use a contemporary term. They become allies of feminism and allies of the gay rights movement, and they do so by represent- representing themselves as s- sissies, or rather, more precisely, writing these memoirs and these autobiographies where they represent themselves as having been sissy boys in their youth. 
Uh, and that, that sissiness in their youth, they're not belonging to the heteronorm, informs their ability to adjust themselves to the demands of this new era in which men can, can no longer simply assume leadership by virtue of their maleness, but instead must, must accommodate gender equality and must accommodate sexual orientation inclusion. So that's, that's my explanation for why the self-epithet, if you will, of the straight sissy becomes something that they embrace. Um, and I guess the last thing quickly I would say is that this is also the way that they navigate these new um, their positions as the first generation to desegregate uh, elite white universities in in the around the United States. You know, they have colleagues. They have white women. They have uh, they have uh, white men as colleagues, and they also have uh, some of the very same black men who are. Uh, black nationalists. I mean, Amira Baraka was a, a, prof- a professor at Stony Brook University, and other other of these black nationalists also were coming into these institutions. And so you have this interesting collection, if you will, that they are having to navigate all at all at once. Yes, and then we move from the straight sissy to folks who identify as gay but not sissy. And uh, as sort of like a genre of gay sports disclosure memoir uh, that you, you talk about here, how this attempt to clearly separate gay identity from the stigmatizing stereotypes of sissiness. And what's really uh, important in this chapter, what I, uh, what I found more, most interesting is how you show once again the role that that race plays in that effort. You begin the chapter with some uh, memoirs written by white athletes, and then you talk about some that were written by men of color, gay men of color. Could you talk a bit about this this sort of genre of the gay sports disclosure memoir? Yes. um, The context of these memoirs is the uh, growing acceptance of, of gay men within the larger body politic. But the reason I wanted this chapter to be last is because I was thinking of the two, the two places that are, in a way, the last preserve of the straight heteronorm, uh, and that is the military and professional sports, uh, especially professional contact sports like boxing, and football. And so I was curious about how these athletes, black, white, and other um, from other ethnic groups, how these professional gay athletes justify their their right to be on the playing field or on the court by by distancing themselves from sissiness. So they make gayness acceptable in the sports arena by pointing out that they are conventionally masculine men. And if you're conventionally masculine, then, oh, you can play the game. You can be on the field as tough as any other man because the exception or the difference of sexual orientation is irrelevant 
to the way one plays sport, but sissiness is perceived as not being so. Um, so it, this to me is part of a larger pattern in the gay rights movement by the 19, actually very quickly after Stonewall, but um, certainly by the 1980s and 1990s, there was this notion in the sort of mainstream LGBT movement, well, the T wasn't there yet, but the LGB movement, that the best way to achieve inclusion in the body politic was to present, let's, let's say, a respectable facade uh, that would, would seem to fit with the uh, prevailing uh, the prevailing conventions of masculinity and femininity uh, to make homosexuality, to make sexual orientation irrelevant. And these memoirs, these um, gay disclosure memoirs of these uh, athletes was, a, for me, a perfect case study of that. Uh, so race becomes important because what I noticed in these memoirs, and we only have a handful of them because we only have a handful. We, first of all, we only have a handful of um, professional male athletes who who self-identified as gay. And among that group, we only have a smaller handful who have written these memoirs. But um, I noted how in the uh, early memoirs, the couple, the several of them written by white athletes, that there was this very strong, uh, what I call sissy avoidance, or even sissy purging that occurs, that they they go to the extreme in say in in making the case for them being normative athletes because they are normatively gendered, uh, and to do so they have to have these cases, these instances of where they represent themselves as not sissies. But what I noted was that in the memoirs written by non-white professional athletes, there was a more complicated relationship to the sissy and that frequently they, they, were, they seemed to me more self-conscious about not fully distancing themselves from the sissy, but instead indicating a kind of fluidity, they might say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a sissy, or actually in a couple of instances, they do claim being sissies earlier on, sort of like the straight sissy memoirs of the 1990s. But um, they make it complicated in that one could be a sissy and still be tough, or one can be affiliated with sissies and still be tough. Um, and I, I suggest that this is a part of a longer tradition within African-American culture where we have the concept of the fierce sissy or the tough sissy, the sissy, the street sissy, the one, the, the, the sissy who's on the street. And this is um, Little Richard is an example of this. The sissy who can comport himself with the display of a, uh, of a physiological sissy, but at the same time, defend himself both with his mouth and with a knife, if need be. And so I think there's a slightly different history of the embodiment of the sissy on the street in African-American culture than what we see with figures like, let's say, Truman Capote um, uh, as a representation of the white sissy in, in, in the larger culture. 
Yes, uh, we have an archetype of the fierce sissy in Brazil in, in, a, in a character, historical character called Madame Satan. There's actually oh. a beautiful film about him. Oh, I'd love to see that. Oh, I'll send you the reference. Oh, great. Thank you. This chapter almost made me want to watch that there's a Netflix series about uh, a white football player is coming out, Cody or yes. something like that. I'm, I'm, I think yes. I'm going to watch it just because of your chapter. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much for us to talk today, but uh, we are sort of running out of time. But I wanted you, before we go, could you share with us what are you working on now? What are you working on next? What can we expect from you after this uh, wonderful book? I am working on um, a volume, an edited volume, volume with uh, Kenrick Ian Grandison called uh Race, Space, and Culture. It's a collection of essays that looks at the way in which race shapes our experiences with and design of space and the ways in which the racialization of space uh, shapes our understanding of race. So that's a, a, a volume of, of, of a variety of scholars from across disciplines writing on this on this topic. I'm also working on um, the second volume of Manning the Race, which is the uh, literary cultural history of, of the representation of Black uh, masculinity in the in across the U.S. The first volume focused on the 1890s through the 19. Uh, 30s through the Harlem Renaissance. And the second volume uh, is uh, a history of, of Black masculinity um, from the World War II period through the present. And I'm, I'm almost finished with that second volume. It's called The Color of Manhood. Well, both sound incredible. Uh, the first uh, book of the, uh, this series is, is amazing. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading both and hope you'll come back to talk to us when they're out. Oh, I would be happy to. <laughs> but thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. No problem. I enjoyed it. And again, thank you for inviting me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke with Dr. Marlon B. Ross about Sissy Insurgencies, a Racial Anatomy of Unfit Manliness, published by Duke University Press in 2022. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.